Um, I was really happy to hear that I'm speaking in a session titled The Art of Maintenance. Um, these two words for me resonate beautifully, but we normally don't hear them together, art and maintenance. When we think of the values of the art world, the business and industry of art, typically caring doesn't come to mind. I think instead about um, power, profit, and, prof and exclusivity. In fact, there's important work going on right now around the idea of communal care in art and design, especially as it re relates to resistance. Recently, my own artist's practice has shifted in this direction, and I'm using the term urgent craft to start to get at it, and as a way to share these ideas in a time of crisis. So what makes these urgent times different? Crisis has been a constant throughout history, depending on where you are, who you speak to, and what communities you identify with. And recently, there's been a strong belief that art and design can make a difference, and sometimes it does. From the AIDS crisis and ACT UP to the rise of neo-fascism, we've seen people take action with tools and platforms that were most readily available to deliver an urgent message. But to approach the question, what is urgent, I think begs another one. Urgent for whom? At the core of urgent craft is a demand to interrogate the location from which you speak and how we address others. These are some of my markers, but whatever the language is that you use, this is the backdrop for approaching urgency. When I think about my own life as a queer person, it looks like a practice of becoming that's taken me several decades. It's an ongoing pursuit that's never complete, that I now see as slow and evolving. A delayed kind of urgency, the constant and never-ending work to find out who we are. So I've learned that there can be something slow about urgency, the patience that's required to do good work for and towards future worlds, the then and there of queer futurity. And I love the contradiction here, that to better understand crisis, we may, we may need to recognize the slowness of how conditions evolve, how power operates, the patience to build and fortify over time, committing to maintenance as a form of urgency. For a while, I tried to explore slowness in this way, but in a more literal sense, with a curatorial project called Library of the Printed Web, since Facebook introduced the idea of the wall in 2006 and then Tumblr in 07, endless feeds have become the primary way to engage online, and we're still getting used to that now. The astounding speed and immediacy of algorithmically delivered information as it flies by on our devices. The printed web occupies this space of slowing down a way of interrogating the network by pulling digital material into an in-between place, making it weird by letting it sit somewhere that feels both digital and physical. So for about five years, I produced 20 publications featuring the work of over 200 artists and writers. And I established an archive that contains 
hundreds of uh, web-to-print works. And in 2017, the entire project was acquired by MoMA in New York. I delivered the archive to MoMA exactly one week after the Trump inauguration. And that's when I began to see the potential for the printed web to gesture urgently towards the political by freezing moments that would otherwise be lost in our digital archives. I noticed that a lot of information had suddenly disappeared from the White House website. So I used the Wayback Machine to look more closely, and I discovered that whole sections had disappeared from whitehouse.gov at 5 p.m. on January 20th, 2017, Inauguration Day. All content related to historically marginalized people had disappeared, including entire sections devoted to African Americans and civil rights, Asian Americans, LGBTQ, women, people with disabilities, seniors, children, and veterans all gone. Instead, the Trump White House had suddenly replaced each page with this message, thank you for your interest in this subject. So I documented this, an act of erasure that, for the most part, today has already been forgotten. And I republished the material in print. How do we choose what to preserve? Thank you for your interest in this subject was a very small but pivotal moment for me when I realized that my publishing practice could interfere with normative narratives by recording and repairing erasure. Others were doing it too in surprising ways. I was outside a lot during those first weeks after the inauguration at protests all over New York City, and for the first time I noticed that people were printing out tweets and carrying them high above their heads, pulling material out of digital archives to perform it in public space. And this was such a different way of thinking about the printed web for me, this act of digging into archives and making something visible as a kind of urgent reminder, as an interruption in public, a small gesture that says something's about to be lost. So I want to recognize the craft here, the care in selecting and isolating an urgent message and bringing it into physical space. Public materiality as one way to resist or at least slow down the narrative. Artist and activist Parker Bright performed a physical interruption that didn't pull from digital feeds but rather occupied them. At the 2017 Whitney Biennial, Parker intentionally blocked the view of Dana Schutz's controversial painting of Emmett Till as an act of protest. With their body in the way, they interfered with the smooth flow of an undisturbed art-viewing experience. And by doing so, they disturbed the visual culture of violence that white supremacy enacts through the art world and the artists it protects. The message, Black Death Spectacle, was handwritten on their back. Blocking the view, Parker reduced the legibility of the painting in one dimension, but enhanced it in another by giving it a new caption. And as their act was captured and amplified, they occupied digital spaces as well, taking over the narrative and forever bonding their message with the painting in our digital archives. To borrow U.S. Congressman and civil rights activist John Lewis's term, Parker caused good trouble by using their own visibility to get in the way. But I need to pause here 
and acknowledge that making good trouble isn't always possible for many people for whom simply living day-to-day -day life in public is dangerous. Visibility itself can be a risk. There are many situations where it's best to remain unseen, to resist being read clearly, where the risks of being seen outweigh the benefits of exposure. At a reading that I, re that I organized last year, queer theorist Jack Halberstam, who also goes by Judith, described it this way, become illegible. Today, we're seeing restrictions around language, identity, and culture tightening everywhere, signaling a real need to define new strategies, new ways of being that complicate oppressive structures, like the gender binary and cisnormativity. To be legible is to be seen clearly by the state. But for some, that's crucial. For an immigrant without documentation, being illegible could mean imprisonment or a deportation. So I want to pause again and acknowledge that this is a complex terrain involving nuanced differences along difference. Illegibility is a privilege that's very difficult to separate from whiteness and who gets to control how they're identified. There's an active battle going on right now against the relentless need to see within surveillance capitalism. And it frequently involves design and technology that's becoming more and more precise and far-reaching in its ability to identify bodies, location, and now behavior. To be seen accurately is to become an agent of capital, a better consumer, a better producer of data, more predictable, more profitable. And I'm reminded that this is what we revere today as the pinnacle of design perfection, craft that's so precise it somehow feels alien to us, beyond human. As champions of legibility, designers frequently work inside the systems that manufacture these ideologies, enabling them to appear and be more enticing, more engaging, more believable. Urgent craft is about interrupting this, this smooth flow of design perfection and the intentional failure to provide the perfect read. Right now, I'm trying to manifest urgent craft in a new publishing project called Queer Archive Work. It's a place to gather and experiment and to ask how might a publication provide a queer space for collective care? Queer.archive.work, that's also the URL for the project, opens my audience up to new networks connecting queer theory to poetry to image makers making good trouble with their work. I'm trying to create a platform for voices who send these kinds of signals out into muddy waters, important messages that don't comply. So far in the first three issues, I've featured the words and images of 50 artists and writers with a focus on LGBTQ, POC, and other people traditionally left out of archives. These publications are designed to make a physical mess as the components shift around and when they slide out of their containers. Urgent Craft stays with the mess to allow for an abundance of meaning and no dominant narrative. In queer archive work, most of the items are unbound. I'm using almost no glue or staples or tape. Instead, the parts use folding, nesting, and enveloping to encourage new kinds of juxtapositions and new kinds of reading, legible to some and dismissed by others. 
Meanwhile, the poetics of the mess is something I'm trying to bring into my teaching as well. In a new course that I just finished at RISD called Urgency Lab, I asked, what would it mean for a classroom to be a space for communal care? And as we progressed, we realized that the urgency was right in the room with us. We were ourselves a micro-community full of relationships, complexities, and vulnerability. We each interpreted ideas like failure and care differently, and negotiating these differences equitably was a challenge for the class, but this is urgent craft, doing this slow work to keep us together in space, invested in the complexities of collective learning and making. Throughout the semester, we discussed and wrote about ideas like boundaries, archives, post-apocalyptic practice, accountability, and identity. And I learned from these students as I saw them slowly self-organize and prioritize things like mental health, inclusivity, and joy. And at the end, we published uh, this deck of cards, urgency cookbook, full of ingredients and recipes for survival and communal care. So to conclude, in our current political climate, where our relationship to truth and power is precarious, to say the least, I'd like to make a proposal that we consider some of these tactics like illegibility, agitation, radical publishing, and messy sense-making as a new kind of curriculum. There are many more. This is the full list, and they live uh, there on my site. And if you're interested, I encourage you to go there and um, read more. It's a set of principles that works to resist oppression-based design ideologies, especially for art and design educators. I wrote them, but they're meant to be borrowed, distributed, used, recirculated, and reauthored however you wish. Urgent Craft is not a manifesto, but rather a constellation of tactics, a series of incomplete observations, a note to self, a reminder that we can use art and design to loosen power. Thank you.